hearing from those of you who listen to American Hysteria with the kids in your life, it's something that fills my heart with joy, maybe more than any other part of making our show. So when I met the team from the Unspookable podcast, I knew we needed to work together on a project. That's because we are kindred spirits. Their show is a more family-friendly and kid-focused look at the same topics we cover, the histories and mysteries behind famous scary stories and urban legends. And they go in depth in much the same way we do to see how these myths came to be and what they mean on a deeper level. So together, we're going to revisit a late 90s toy that I think most of you will remember. One that is making headlines once again as it hits the department store shelves of July 2023. I'm thrilled to join the team from Unspookable, including Elise Parisian, Eleanor Riley Condit, and Nate DeFort, for a look at the urban legends, conspiracy theories, and freaky stories that enchanted the Furbies of yore, and what our mini-panic can tell us about our human nature, and of course, America at large. I'm Elise Parisian, here with head writer and producer Eleanor Riley Condit and Nate Dufort. And I'm Chelsea Weber-Smith from American Hysteria, teaming up with Unspookable for this very special episode. We are so thrilled to be doing this. Like when we first started talking with you, we were like, wait, that's an option? We can do something together? We had to jump at the chance. We can do anything. (laughs) Let that be a lesson to you, kids. (laughs) So what are we talking about today? Well, we are talking about a toy that has suddenly returned as if it is a sequel to a horror movie. We're talking about Furby, the 1998 smash hit toy of the season. I am very familiar being a late 80s, early 90s kid of the Furby, but I'm really curious what the rest of the Unspookable team knows about this toy. So I had one. I think I didn't I don't think I got one right away. I don't think that I was like you know, in in the wave of people like fighting at the toy store shelves for them. But I think I got one maybe in like 1999 or 2000. And for some reason, it was a graduation themed Furby. Like it maybe I maybe I got it for like fifth grade graduation or something (laughs) like that. But it had a little graduation cap. (laughs) It's cute. But yeah, I I eventually got rid of it because it kind of creeped me out. I remember my mom being very much like absolutely not about the Furby aesthetic, the Furby vibe. I remember the Furby lore. I don't know if that was part of her anti-Furby mindset, but the first one I had, I think, came from a McDonald's Happy Meal toy that I got. They had like collectible Furby little toys on, on hooks that you could get. 
So that was my first one. And then my school would have a toy sale where kids could bring in their old toys that they didn't want anymore. And you could sell them to your peers for like 25 cents. And I got my own Furby that day. It was really exciting. And an early introduction to capitalism. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I, there was a Furby in my house. It wasn't mine. And my most specific memory about this was it waking up everyone on our floor of the house in the middle of the night. It would just start talking and it wasn't quiet. <laughs> I remember being woken up many a times in middle school to a Furby chirping in its Furbish. Is that the language? That's right. For our listeners that may not be familiar in some of like the recent pop culture references to this, I remember it popping up in uh, Mitchell's versus the machines, a Furby or Furby-like creature. Who can tell me what this thing looks like? I can definitely give it a shot. So Furby sometimes is described as like part owl. It's got big eyes. It's got a little bit of a gremlin kind of vibe to it. It's basically a circle with ears <laughs> and big eyes. And for me, the most memorable part is that the eyes open and close and they have the big eyelashes. But every time the eyes would open and close, it was kind of like when you're at Chuck E. Cheese and you see the band playing and you can hear their blinking. It's just like clack, clack. And it's very <laughs> unnerving. Um, and then they also, for whatever reason, had a little beak and that beak would also clack open and closed which was part of how loud it was it wasn't just how loud it talked it was like all of its movements were strangely loud and then it also had kind of cat or rabbit like ears that would move around as it made different expressions and it was furry and it was <laughs> covered <furry>. in fur <laughs> well knowing what our shows normally talk about i can only imagine that there's something a little bit deeper. So what's the scoop? I want to tell y'all about kind of the bigger picture of not only the urban legends and conspiracy theories that popped up around this toy, which were surprisingly very, very many, but also how those conspiracies and urban legends affected both children and adults. And I want to talk about the phenomenon of like the toy riot, um, which happened with Beanie Babies and Tickle Me Elmo and Cabbage Patch Kids before it. Of I'd like to read you all an article about parents literally fighting in the aisles to get this hot toy of the season. And then I also want to end and kind of like do a little bit of analysis on how new technology can cause us this underlying anxiety. And sometimes we can take that anxiety and project it onto things that kind of represent what we're nervous about. And in this case, we'll be talking about Furby. I was devoted to my Furby, but eventually it ran out of batteries and was reduced to a paperweight. Then one night, I accidentally pushed off my desk and went boo, and its eyes rolled down its face so that wires were visible. There were no batteries inside it. I just made up some BS to myself about leftover charge and put it away. We were watching our neighbor's two-year-old golden retriever while they were on vacation for a week. One day, I was out running errands with my mom, 
and our neighbor's dog was home alone with our six-month-old golden retriever. When we got home, we opened the door to find that the dogs had found my sister's Furby and dropped it down the stairs. They were both at the top of the stairs, barking wildly at the beaten-up Furby that was emitting a constant high-pitched shriek while its eyes and beak twitched. Not a pretty sight. I had a Furby that I loved for a few months, then I turned her off and set her up in my closet. I didn't want to give her away. She sat there, in view, with her eyes closed, for probably four years. One day, I opened my closet door. Her eyes are open. She blinked at me. Then I got rid of her. Sorry, Malika. One of my elementary school friends' house burnt down. Electrical, no funny business, and nobody was hurt. So we were going through some boxes of his stuff and trying to find anything that was salvageable or still usable. I pulled his charred husk of a Furby out and looked at it for a second. As I'm about to throw it in the trash pile, it starts talking. I flip out and whip it into the road where it gets run over by a passing ice cream truck. We go to investigate and its mouth is still opening and closing, but no sound came out. The thought of it still haunts me to this day. That's terrifying. That's very scary. I feel like, you know, I I almost feel like I got goosebumps from that one. (laughs) Yeah, that creeps me out. You know, there are other legends around Furby, and I think one of the creepiest that I heard a lot of was that people would either throw their Furbies like out the window in desperation because it was so annoying or so creepy, or they'd throw it in the garbage and then magically it would reappear the next night on their shelf. And that was uh, something that really, really freaked people out for obvious reasons. People would also talk about how if you spend enough time taunting your Furby, you could get it to actually say swear words because part of the attraction to Furby was the concept that you were able to teach this Furby new words. So it started out only being able to speak its kind of baby-like furbish language but as time went on and you actually spent time and like befriended this robot it would be able to mimic words and phrases that you said so there were stories not only of uh, of the furby repeating these bad words but also someone claimed that their furby started singing an opera and another person claimed you know that of course satan was talking through the Furby, which is another uh, possibility in terms of it learning demonic uh, Latin. And so there was a lot of different things that that the Furby could do. And because of that, or a lot of things people thought the Furby could do. And because of that, the idea kind of spread both to parents and kids. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. So as mentioned, uh, there were there was a lot of interest in this toy. And I was wondering, because I definitely remember the intense, you know, basically fights to get this hot new toy that there were certainly not enough of for maybe the surprising demand that came in during Christmas of 1998. What do you guys remember? I remember... And sort of speaking to what I was saying before, like maybe that was something my parents were more tapped into. And that was part of the like, absolutely not. Like we are not trying to buy into this like mass obsession with these kind of creepy, colorful owl robots. I absolutely remember this era. Uh, This was maybe the third or fourth Christmas season in a row where there was the big toy that everyone had to have. And it was getting news coverage almost every single night, uh, you know, in December leading up to, uh, uh, you know, winter holidays. This was the thing to have fighting in stores. There's no reserves. There's no layaways, if that's a thing anyone remembers on these toys. It was cash in hand and people bidding or buying them off of each other in the parking lot. You were a good parent if you could secure one and a terrible parent undeserving of love if you couldn't. Like it did feel kind of like with Beanie Babies or with with uh, something like that where there were ones that were sort of like cooler to have. Like you were like you were you know, more popular at school if you had, you know, this type of Furby versus this one. I wish I could remember more about like the variety of of what they all looked like. But I just remember distinctly having this impression that like one of my mm. best friends at the time had a good one. And and <laughs> it's just funny because what what does that even mean anymore? Like maybe its fur was a different color or something. But um, yeah, there were just there were just ones that were more popular than others too. I have a distinct memory of like a blue like blue moon ice cream Furby with like purple spots, and that one being like whoa, yeah, it's the princess dye beanie baby <laughs> of the Furby world. <laughs> exactly. Well, how about I read to you a little part of an article? In the Odessa American from December of 1998, okay? Yes. 
fury erupted at a Walmart in Lynn, Massachusetts, when customers who had waited overnight found out there were only 30 Furbies in stock. Two women were injured in a Furby stampede at a Walmart in Illinois. Furby shoppers in Denver knocked over displays and trampled bystanders. Arlington shoppers became abusive and started cursing Walmart employees when they learned that there weren't any more Furbies in stock. So, you know, we're getting actual injuries because of the desire for this toy and the mania that parents had to make sure, as mentioned, that they were the good parents who got the good toy for their kids. And in fact, it's funny because I've read a couple different articles that really talked about how kids themselves didn't seem to be that overly excited about Furby. And it was something that the parents almost decided that kids wanted for them, right? I don't know of anyone when I bring up Furby that looks back and says, oh, I loved my Furby. You know, I just got along great with my Furby and it really made my life richer. You know, everybody looks back and says like, I don't know, there was something going on with that that creeped me out. Exactly. I feel like this is so direct line media to parents. Uh, This was never on Anyone that I knows, uh, you know, holiday or birthday list at this point. This was truly capitalism at work. Uh, this is the hot toy. This is the thing you have to have. No, mom, I'd rather have a skateboard. Yeah, no, you're getting a Furby. Trust me, it's the cool one. And there were so many amazing other toys. I think this is the beginning of gadgets, um, you know, along with video games being a mandatory part of holiday shopping. Absolutely. And I mean, Furby was, as we'll get into at the end here, Furby was a revolutionary toy. Um, And I don't think children fully grasped how far AI had come throughout the 90s. But, you know, parents were paying attention to a lot of the advancements that were happening that triggered both excitement and anxiety. But parents, you know, they knew that this was the next frontier in playdom. (laughs) (laughs) The next frontier in toys. This thing starts scaring kids immediately, as we've started saying, What are kids scared of that's happening? You know, we've talked a little bit about uh, these things talking unexpectedly, maybe in the middle of the night. They're speaking an invented language that uh, feels a little bit off and they're not exactly attractive or like anything of this world. You know, these are some of the immediate knee jerk like Yeah, this thing is terrifying. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that these toys were considered in their way to be sentient, meaning that they were able to think and possibly even feel the way that a human being would. And before that, I mean, they're really... We've sure we've thought about, you know, creepy dolls. We've thought, oh, maybe that doll is possessed or, you know, maybe I heard my toy talking in the night. But it usually could be, you know, written off as a dream or something like that. But when it came to Furby, 
it indeed did wake up in the night and start talking from your closet. That's not an urban legend. That's just new technology. Um, And I think that that combined with the, we'll learn a new word today, the uncanny valley effect, which is when something appears close to human, but not human enough for us to recognize it as a human. So when we look at Furby, we see some human-like traits. We see the eyes moving. We hear the human voice. And it's coming out of something that that creeps us out naturally because naturally we are trying to discern, we're trying to figure out when something is safe, when something is human. But if we see something that looks like it's not human, then our brain thinks that that that's a threatening thing, like there's something off about that. And some theories about why that is, is like when we were hunter-gatherers and we saw something like a dead body, right? Like someone who's, who was human but now looks slightly off. We don't want to approach that because that's mm-hmm. dangerous. Or if we were to see someone, for example, who had been bitten by a raccoon and had rabies and we might notice that they're, act, they're human but they're acting off, like there's something wrong with what we're seeing. And so we have this kind of natural like this natural part of our brain that that repels us and makes us want to move away from things that are human but not human enough. And I think that that could potentially be part of what creeps us out kind of naturally about this toy. So that's how we're protecting ourselves is, you know, we, mm-hmm. we put some distance between us in this thing. But you know, if I remember correctly, this kind of went up the ladder. This wasn't just kids and families in their self-preservation. This got bigger, didn't it? Oh, it got very big. And certainly it was, um, as it often is, kids told their urban legends and and got creeped out at night and parents took it to the highest levels of government. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a tale as old as time. So part of Furby's technology was not only was it supposed to learn new English words and kind of hear you speak to it and react to you, but it was also supposed to react to other Furbies that you placed near it. So your best friend could come over with her Furby and you could put them right next to each other and they would interact. And the way that they did that was through like an electromagnetic wave, some type of science I wouldn't be able to explain to you. But uh, this kind of sparked a bit of a fear when it came to flying. Because as many of us know, when you get on an airplane, you have to put your cell phone on, you know, on airplane mode, you have to turn off your electronics. So the idea that a Furby that comes on randomly and is hard to sort of fully turn off, um, unless of course you take out the batteries, but even then, as the urban legend goes, sometimes Furby still works. So it was banned by... Airlines in the U.S., in Japan, Australia, England, and it just, you know, this started to kick off this anxiety of, like, Furby's being banned from doing certain things, right? And that's, like, a pretty weird thing to hear 
as an adult and as a kid. So again, it's just a misunderstanding of this technology. You're saying it's it's electromagnetic. It's talking to us like a um, uh, mm-hmm. remote control would with a television. Uh, it's, you know, a sure, relatively yeah. benign technology. Yep. But uh, that didn't stop the next wave of concern. This time, the concern was about whether the signals that came from Furby could like actually interrupt the mechanisms that make different medical equipment work in hospitals. Got it. So it was actually people were worried that Furby through its technology, would actually be able to do things like shut off life support systems and actually cause death to people just by being in a kid's backpack when they're visiting their grandpa in the hospital. Wow. So really powerful, fuzzy beings. Right? And I mean, thinking, you know, now we're moving into territory of not only could a Furby crash a plane, but a Furby could, like, kill someone in your family Who's on life support? I mean, yeah, these these creatures are taking on like a new sinister dimension that I don't think anybody, especially the creators, really could have predicted. It's wild to me what we get used to, though, because think about what we carry around in our pockets now, like the level of of, uh, you know, surveillance and data usage and all of these things that are happening on our smartphones all the time. I mean. I I can't even begin to understand how my phone is communicating with everything around it. And if someone had told me or, you know, probably someone a little bit older who was thinking about these things in 1998, like, oh, yeah, you know, 25 years from now, it's going to be so much more than just electromagnetic waves from a fuzzy toy that can talk. We would have been like, what? But now we're completely right. Like now we're completely like, yeah, absolutely. It's fine. Whatever's interfering with the uh, life support of grandpa from my phone. That's fine. It was just Furby, you know? Yeah. Whatever gets me the best targeted ads on Instagram. It's fine by me. Exactly. (laughs) And I think Ellie hit upon that thing that we haven't discussed much yet. The surveillance aspect. Mm. We have Furby's learning from interacting with us. Are Furbies listening to us? That has to be some source of this fear. Oh, it sure is. Perhaps I would say the most lasting actual memory of this time and the the way that Furby was so blown out of proportion in terms of its technology. So After the initial Furby explosion, right, we move into 1999 and, you know, people start to realize, okay, like if Furby can learn, it must be listening through a microphone. And not only did that freak people out just on a personal level because we weren't used to this kind of surveillance as we are now, you know, we weren't used to something listening to us all the time or at least um, paying attention to the things that we're doing. And so once people got the idea in their head that Furby was listening, that caught the attention of the United States government. (laughs) And uh, 
Furby started to be presented in the media as a kind of spy. And not only were was this kind of talked about on the news and spoken about with parents, but actually the National Security Agency offices at Fort Meade in Maryland fully banned Furbies from the premises. And they wrote this memo that went out to the public that said that any personally owned photographic, video, and audio recording equipment are prohibited items. This includes toys such as Furbies with built-in recorders that repeat the audio with synthesized sound to mimic the original. So that was the other part of Furby, right, is not only could it learn new words, but it could repeat repeat back what it heard. So the fear was you bring a Furby into, I don't know who's bringing a Furby into some high security meeting, but, you know, you bring your Furby in, in your backpack, you know, with like an evil spy cackle and you listen to, you know, whatever this classified information is that they were afraid was going to get leaked. And then you bring your Furby home or you bring your Furby to, you know, whoever your spy boss is. And then they can write down all of the secrets of the United States government. You would think that the National Security Agency at that point would know that there were probably more elaborate technologies that were being used you would for think. that. But yeah, Furby, Furby in a meeting, always a day. Yeah, <laughs> for many reasons, more reasons than one. <laughs> so then it actually reached the naval shipyards in Norfolk, Virginia. And there was an official email sent to personnel that said about Furby, quote, it's considered a recording device and as such is not allowed without the commander's approval. If you see one, you are to take proper action, seize it, and its owner. This is a security violation. The toy shall be held as evidence on a chain of custody form. Okay, come on. So high drama, right? Just like high drama from the adults of America, which is what we've come to expect, I think. Yeah, that's your tax dollars at work. Wow. (laughs) So, of course, these, these news reports spread around because what news station is not going to cover Furby is banned from the NSA office in Maryland. That's a juicy tale. And so the media did their part in um, freaking us out about this new technology and the potential of this new technology that, as you mentioned, Nate, was sort of a big misunderstanding. Furby, the technology to record and transmit at the price point of a toy, it couldn't have existed in 1998. We didn't have cell phones, uh, you know, uh, that were anywhere near affordable in that time period. Absolutely. And I mean, Furby was like a cool 35 bucks in 1998. I don't know what the what that would be now, but, you know, that was not a crazy expensive toy. It was definitely expensive, but it and, you know, as demand increased, the price went up. But if we're talking sort of like the original profit motive of like, what does it take to build something like a Furby? If you're selling it for thirty five bucks, the technology is not that sophisticated, I would say. I remember that mine could barely even repeat what I said. Well, you know that there may be a reason for that. (laughs) Could I go into sort of the reality of the Furby technology? Absolutely. So there was a dire misunderstanding here (laughs) when it came to how Furby worked. And that is that 
the whole basis of Furby. And I can't tell you, I don't know if this was like misleading marketing or this was an assumption made by people. But the truth of Furby is that it's designed to start out talking in Furbish, in this baby-like language. And over time, the other English words start to come in. And it has absolutely nothing to do with how much you play with the Furby, with how much you talk to the Furby. It doesn't matter what you say to the Furby. The Furby cannot hear you. (laughs) And that is a big deal because Furby, though, yes, it does have a microphone. All the microphone can do is sense that there is sound around it and deliver that sound to the robot in just a long beep to indicate, okay, now it's time for this robot to react in some way, right? So all it can hear is a beep that differentiates basically nothing. It doesn't know you're mad. It doesn't know you're sad. It doesn't know you just said the F word. It doesn't know you're singing opera and it cannot learn any of those (laughs) things at all. Wow. That's incredible. And yet it got blown up to this enormous thing that freaked out multiple generations of humans. And not only that, but when it came to taking a Furby on an airplane or taking it to a hospital, you mentioned the remote, that it is really no different than a remote. And that's true. It's the electromagnetic field of a Furby is actually 70 times weaker than a cell phone. So if you have a cell phone in a hospital room and nothing bad's happening, then, you know, a Furby is is just was is 70 times weaker than the technology that you're holding in your pocket. So that was also a complete misunderstanding of the power of a $35 toy. My head immediately went to what if you had 70 Furbies in a hospital room though? <laughs> then you'd just have a cell phone. <laughs> okay, okay. So it'd probably still be okay. Yeah. Or a well, nightmare. <laughs> you'd have both. <laughs> God, that would be imagine, you know, like you wake up from some kind of concussion and usually your your room is surrounded with flowers and balloons. But in this case, it's just 70 Furbies. And that's what you wake back up to. And you're like, what year is (laughs) more after this? So going back to some of the tales that children were telling and the actual experiences that they were having, perhaps uh, swear words and demonic uh, messages aside, there was truth to the fact that since Furby was such a new piece of technology and because so many of them were being pumped out so quickly, they were prone to malfunction. So part of the reason we heard this story again and again of like, My Furby was talking all night and I took the batteries out and, you know, a couple hours later, it still woke up again. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's freaky. Right. You unplug the scary TV with the with the ghost in it and it it continues to play. That's kind of a classic horror movie trope. Um, But the explanation behind that is that some electronics have the capability to hold energy for 
functions after the batteries have been removed. So it's actually possible that some of these Furbies had what they call capacitors that are able to hold small amounts of energy. So you could actually take the batteries out and the Furby, you know, wouldn't it wouldn't last very long, but the Furby could still have enough of that battery reserve to wake up and say a couple things and just scare the daylights out of uh, children and parents alike because I guarantee that that parents got very frustrated and annoyed with the sound of the Furby in the night, took out the batteries and were awoken not long after and, and had to had to have their own fears around these kind of uh, sentient beings. Amazing. So another thing that we heard a lot, which is my favorite, my favorite part of the urban legend is that kids would throw their Furbies away or in some way discard their Furby um, in hopes that this this demon would finally be exercised from their bedroom. And then the story would be, you know, the next day the Furby came back. And I think that there's a pretty simple explanation for why this happened. And, you know, you're a parent you have just fist fought your way to get this, you know, moderately expensive piece of new technology. And you go into your child's room and you say, huh, where's the Furby? Where's the toy that I bought? Where's the beloved toy for my child who will now love me forever since I got them the hottest new toy? Oh, I can't find the toy. Oh, the toy's in the garbage. How strange. I'm going to take the toy out of the garbage and place it back on the shelf for my child. So I don't think it's that outlandish to say, okay, parents were probably just taking the toys out of the garbage, going out on the lawn and saying, why is the Furby on the lawn? I better put this back in my child's bedroom. So I just love how something like that could become such lore around the Furby when all it is is kind of the most basic like parent eye roll where they're like, to not taking care of their toys again, better put it back on the shelf. Um, and then it kind of created a whole mythology around the toy. I love that so much and so have that mother uh, who would have done that exact same thing me it's thinking it. my you know my toys were haunted oh yes my mother would have played on that. I mean she maybe did but if she didn't I'm shocked that she didn't uh, prank me with the Furby yeah. to be to be sure so I think a, an important thing to talk about with Furby is that we can go back, actually, all the way to when the telegraph was invented in the 1800s. So that's like a long time ago, right? But at the time, the telegraph was sending messages, you know, in, the, in Morse code, in the taps. And there was a, a code that we could read that came in beeps and stops, and that could then be translated into a message. So this was the first time in American history that you could talk to somebody who was far away from you. Before, the best you could do was send a letter by horseback and hope that it gets to wh whoever you are trying to talk to. But in this case, it was almost an instant message. So it was kind of the first instant messenger that we ever had. And right around that time, a huge movement around talking to the dead came up and people started holding seances. Mm -hmm. There was actually two girls who, who tricked the whole world into thinking that they could speak to the dead because they learned how to to tap 
on the ground with their joints to make this sound that was not unlike the telegraph. And people just believed, okay, if we can talk to somebody far away, which was completely magical, if we can talk to someone we can't see in front of us, then who's to say we can't talk to another dimension or another, you know, another paranormal type entity or even the people that we've lost. And so we moved on to the telephone and that's when people started having people channeled through them. If you've ever heard of people who the dead speak through and maybe they change their voice and and it mimics sort of the idea that now I can hear somebody's voice and I could never hear somebody's voice who wasn't in the room with me. So if I can hear someone's voice who's not in the room with me, who's to say I can't hear the voices of the great beyond? Um, And so each time we get this new wave of technology, there's usually something kind of paranormal about the way that we process something that's pretty scary. Like, it's amazing, but you're also like, there's an anxiety that comes with these big changes and and knowing that the world is is changing as well. And one of the other pieces of technology that was rising at the time of Furby was, of course, the cell phone. And that was something that was another piece of exciting yet anxiety producing technology that, that, of course, we have learned creates a great deal of anxiety in us all. But, you know, not only did people have suspicions and fears around cell phones recording us in large part because it was the first time we ever had something technological that could hear our voice and transmit our voice literally on our person at all time. So it wasn't like, okay, the phone's in the kitchen. You know, we didn't think that those types of phones could ever be listening to us. But when we're like carrying something with us all the time, it takes on this other dimension of could it be recording me? Could it be listening? But something else that I thought of when I was thinking about this phenomenon is that The fact that we always have our cell phone on us was the first time that whenever anybody felt like it, they could get in touch with you. It could be the middle of the night. Someone you don't want to talk to could give you a call on your cell phone, which is on all the time, and uh, it could light up and anyone could be on the other line. And I think like Furby, you know, it sits up in the closet and can interrupt your life at any time at its own will. And I think there's something there, too. We are so suspicious of these technological advances. And, you know, we already look to the sky to answer, you know, so many of our larger mysteries. Why not continue to do those with these uh, these modern conveniences as well? Though I think we found in recent years that this questioning is maybe not happening enough, like looking at some of the scary things associated with uh, cellular and AI technology even. Like we're asking these questions now and maybe some of it's just too little too late. Oh, yeah. You're telling me. I am <laughs> I am not looking forward to the future of AI. But, you know, Furby really was the first accessible artificial intelligence and that, you know, that a, a kid could just have a piece of artificial intelligence or at least we believed it to be, you know, more advanced artificial intelligence than it was. And that was a, a really big deal. And I think that's part of what made it so popular is it felt like a new frontier. But 
it was coming in a time when we were starting to have this experience with AI for the first time. Like in, in 1997, this robot program called Deep Blue actually beat a living chess master at chess. Mm-hmm. And Gary Kasparov was his name. And that was a huge deal. That was big news across the world that the intelligence that we're creating is starting to get smarter than us. And we all know how scary that is. I mean, that's the basis of a lot of sci-fi out there that, uh, you know, they're going to take over. The robots are going to grow too smart and they are going to usurp the human beings of the planet. And so, you know, this this was like a, a big time for AI. Like, for example, natural language processing was beginning. And that is basically giving computers the ability to understand both text and the words that you're saying, just like a human being can. So a robot was able to, for the first time, take in this information and store it. And not only that, but it was the time that we started to develop this thing called deep learning, which is something that teaches computers to work the way that a human brain does. So they can actually recognize very complex patterns of like pictures, words, sounds, and all kinds of different data. And so not only can it take that data in, but it can process it and then make predictions based on it. So it's like a human brain. And that (laughs) is a pretty freaky new development for people, right? I mean, wouldn't that freak anyone out? Absolutely. I think, you know, these thought experiments are enormous. And as we see them integrated into our day-to-day life, I think kind of the next wave of this is the philosophy and ethical questions associated with this deeper technology that takes those initial conversations of the telegraph and its implications so much further beyond that, uh, because these things can potentially evolve beyond the capabilities or at least the brain function of humans. And what happens when that occurs? I shudder to think. (laughs) Podcasters are out of jobs. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that I just saw and why this is so timely is I just saw this announcement from Hasbro that to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Furby's release this month, uh, July 15th, uh, they released an anniversary edition of the Furby. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Uh, The one thing that I thought was very funny addressing some of those fears we had before about those capacitors and these things turning on in the middle of the night is that the new Furby will indeed have an off switch. Well, that's a start. (laughs) I don't know if it's going to I don't know if it's going to really turn off. I cannot wait to hear the legends that come out of the new Furby. And I I hope and pray that they are many because I would say that that the stories around Furby, though they reached the highest levels of government, uh, didn't end up doing too much harm uh, and really did give us a lot of great uh, 
memories and stories to tell the next generation, which we have been doing since the uh, the announcement of the new Furby. I feel like millennials everywhere and uh, Gen X as well have been recalling all of the horror stories of their youth. And, and we love to do it. And uh, I think in a way it was it was a gift, at least at least to me. Would it even be an anniversary without maybe misguided nostalgia at some points? <laughs> Good one. <laughs> well, Chelsea, I'm so glad we all got to spend this time together and you lending your expertise and filling us in on, I guess, the continuing tales of, uh, of the Furby. I, it was an absolute honor and a privilege. So thank you so much for having me and for uh, letting me talk about... <laughs> the urban legends and conspiracy theories around our dear Furby. Thanks for listening to this special collaboration between American Hysteria and Unspookable. We're your hosts, Elise Parisian and Chelsea Weber-Smith. Also appearing this week were Unspookable head writer Eleanor Riley Condit and producer Nate Dufort. This episode was produced by Nate Dufort and Chelsea Weber-Smith. The American Hysteria theme song was composed by Hakan Erickson. And the Unspookable theme song and this week's special mashup of the two was created by Jesse Case. Special thanks this week to Jonah, Bella, Isabella, and John. You can find Unspookable and American Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, my God.